Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Good morning, Grace. We are in Luke chapter 1, continuing our series called The Christmas Drama. While you're making your way to Luke chapter 1, I do have to tell you that... uh, If you didn't notice, the title to this sermon is When God Mercifully Interrupts Meddling Family Members Who Want to Name Your Baby. (laughs) I want to remind you of that because I got a phone call on Friday from my mother. And I had posted this on Twitter and Facebook, as I usually do, letting you know what the sermon's about. And you can kind of read ahead. And she said, hey, what's with the title of your sermon this week? Does that have anything to do with me? And... She said, you know, that her and my dad got got a Bible out and looked at the verse. And I said, no, it's in the text. But it just so happens that with every kid of ours, you've tried to name our baby. And just like she tried to do with this one, I love my mom. So that's just something you do in the South. In the South, people feel they have the freedom to come up to anyone and say, well, you should name your baby this. So anyway, it was funny. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending your son to be born into this world as a crying little baby, covered in afterbirth, nursing, needing his diapers changed, and that he became like us in every way except for sin. And we thank you, God. We will never know what it costs to see our sin upon the cross. And it will take us an eternity to try to figure that out. And when we do, Father, we'll just be amazed again and fall down and worship you again that you would even save sinners who turn away from you, who are born as rebels and live their lives as rebels, and yet you are so gracious to us. God, thank you for that. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises in your word. Help me to preach and teach today, God, so that we all leave here excited and renewed in our passion to want to love you and to serve you and to live for you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Names are very important. They're very significant. Um, This is readily observed in the Johnny Cash song called A Boy Named Sue. If you're not familiar with it, I'm going to read you a few lyrics. I don't have time to go through all of it. I wanted to, but essentially the story is about this boy who grows up and his dad leaves him and his mother behind and he had named his boy Sue. So the boy grows up with this girl's name his whole life. He's you know, getting picked on. He's embarrassed. He has to like kind of make his way through life. And he said, I'm determined to find my dad one day. So he carries this picture around of his dad and one day strolls into this bar and sees his dad and picks a fight and they get into this fight together and in the midst of the fight one of them draws the gun and then the dad says to him finally he says and he said son this world is rough and if a man's gonna make it he's got to be tough and I knew I wouldn't be there to help you along so I give you that name and I said goodbye and I knew you'd have to get tough or die and it's the name that helped to make you strong he said now you just taught You just fought one tough of a fight, and I know you hate me, and you got the right to kill me now, and I wouldn't blame you if you do, but you ought to thank me before I die for the gravel in your guts and the spit in your eye, because I'm the old man that named you Sue. Well, I got all choked up, and I threw down my gun, and I called him my pa, and he called me his son, and I came away with a different point of view. 
And I think about him now and then every time I try and every time I win. And if I ever have a son, I think I'm going to name him Bill or George, anything but Sue. I still hate that name. (laughs) A classic Johnny Cash song. Names are significant. Names are important. Names in the Bible communicate theology. And the same is true in our passage today. We're going to see that a baby's name becomes very significant in the passage. This baby's name will become a vehicle through which God will send a message to his people, the Israelites, who are under the oppression of the Romans. And God is going to tell his people through the name John that he is gracious. And he wants to remind his people of that. So here's the big idea for today out of these verses out of Luke chapter 1, it's this. God's promises mercifully shatter our understanding of our circumstances to bring about redemption. In other words, God's promises from his word that come to his people, when you believe them, when you embrace them and accept them as true, they shatter your perception of your circumstances. They shatter your understanding of your situation and you begin to see that God is in fact working in your life to bring about redemption. That's what I mean when I say that. God's promises mercifully come to us and they shatter our understanding of our circumstances to bring about redemption. Here's one practical way that I do this. Every time I walk up those steps to come up here, I have a promise that I bring up here with me. Because I dare never get into this pulpit of my own strength. And so many times I come up here saying, God, your word says in Psalm 125 that as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. And God, I'm believing that promise as I go into the pulpit. So you have to learn to take God's promises and bring them into your life and let them shatter your perception and your understanding of what's happening in your life so that you begin to believe that God is, in fact, working out his plan of redemption in your life. One of the most famous promises that people claim in their life is Romans 28, that all things are working together for our good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You can take that verse and say that all things are working together for my good. The strained relationship at work, maybe a strained relationship with an in-law, the neighbor who's driving you crazy, the pipes that have burst all over the floor of your house, you say, God, I know that all of those crazy things are working together. They're all coming together in such a way to work for my good, because that's what your word says. So that's how God's promises come to us mercifully, And they shatter our understanding. That's what we see in verses 57 through 63. So direct your attention there. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. And she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he, Zechariah, asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. We see God's merciful promise coming here to Elizabeth. In Luke 1.13, Gabriel the angel appeared to Elizabeth, this old lady, who was barren and could never have children, but now especially, she's beyond the years, Luke said. 
She's old, maybe 70, 80 years old. Gabriel came to her and gave her a promise, which was shattering her world. And Gabriel said, you will bear a son and you will call his name John. So God's merciful promise came through Gabriel the angel to Elizabeth. And it shattered her world. But we also see God's mercy came to Elizabeth when she delivered the baby. Imagine, ladies, 70, 80 years old, 60, even 50. I don't know how old she is. Imagine giving birth at that age. So God's mercy comes to Elizabeth as this old, wrinkled woman is giving birth. And then Luke says more mercy came to her because in verse 58 it says the Lord had great mercy upon her. It's the Greek word megaluno. It means mega, great, big. God's mercy came in such a massive and powerful way to comfort and enable Elizabeth, who was very, very old, to give birth to John. Imagine her screaming at Zechariah like some women do. Why did you do this to me? None of you women have ever done that, right? Listen, you have the right to say that in that moment, okay? Because you're in pain and you'll forget it and we'll forget it too. So imagine, here there she's saying to Zechariah, help me. But remember, Zechariah is mute. And we'll find out today that they were making motions to him, so he was deaf too. So Zechariah can't say anything. He can't hear anything. All he sees is Elizabeth doing this. For all he knows, she's saying, honey, I love you. You're the greatest husband in the world as she gives birth. Thank you. Zechariah can't use everything he learned in his Lamaze class, anything he can't tell her, breathe, breathe, do this. He's just there. And so God's great mercy comes to Elizabeth in that moment because her husband really couldn't help her out that much. Second, notice how Elizabeth's friends show up. That's community. That's the evidence of God's grace that when you go through something in your life, the people of God come around you and support you. And strengthen you. That's an evidence of God's mercy and his grace. Third, notice how they rejoiced with her, it says. They entered into this moment. They knew that Elizabeth had grown up her whole life being barren. That that people in their culture would have assumed that she was under the curse of God because she couldn't have children. They believed that women who couldn't have children were under the curse of God. And these people come and rejoice with her that, hey, you're not under the curse of God. You have had a child. And they're rejoicing with her. But this is what I love about the community. They take the child down, John, to circumcise him on the eighth day, and the whole community goes with them. I mean, this is a big moment. I mean, they take community seriously. When they say they're in a small group, I mean, they're in the small group. The small group is there. The community group is there. They're rallying around her to take John down as he is to get circumcised. And then notice in verse 59, it says that they wanted to call him Zechariah. Wait a minute, Elizabeth. You need to call him Zechariah. You need to call him Junior. That's what we do. You don't understand, Elizabeth, because you've never had kids before. This is how it works in the Jewish culture. You have a boy and you name him after the father. And then what does Elizabeth do? She says, no. She breaks with the cultural norm because of God's word that came to her. Gabriel the angel said to her, you are going to name the baby John. She broke away with culture. She broke away from family and said, I have to be obedient to God. And so sometimes the people of God in their lives have to have that crisis moment where they break from their family or their friends or their culture, which says, do this. But you have to break off that, whatever it is that they're telling you to do that's contrary to God's word. Maybe it's a relationship that you have to break off. And that's what she does here. 
She says, his name is going to be John. She's being obedient to the promise that came to her. And then the crowd appeals to Zechariah, who's deaf and mute, because he failed to believe God's word through the angel Gabriel. And so they're making motions to him, like, I don't know what they even said, how you do name, sign language wasn't around. They're making some motions to Zechariah, like, she's going to call the baby John. He can't hear anything. This is all he hears. Hands moving, and he says, give me a writing tablet. He asked for some sort of writing tablet, which was probably like a, a piece of wood that they would cover over with wax, and you would, you would mark into it. So he writes on there, his name will be John. And what does the name John mean? It means Yahweh is gracious. The Lord is gracious. Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. We read about in the Old Testament. God was saying to his people, through the birth and naming of John, He's gracious. God was reminding the Israelites, in spite of your circumstances and how you feel under the oppression of the Roman government, God was communicating to his people through the baby's name, and he's saying, I am gracious. See, God's promises mercifully shatter our understanding of our circumstances in order to bring about redemption. So here we have God. He's intervening in the lives of these two old people. uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, because Elizabeth got pregnant. It's not normal to get pregnant when you're 80-something years old, especially if you've been barren. This intervention of God's sovereign grace shattered Elizabeth and Zechariah's understanding of their world. She was thinking, me, an old barren lady drawing social security is going to be pregnant? But God was shattering. God intervened in the naming of their son by telling them to name your son John. Don't name him uh, Zechariah. Don't give him a family name. God's sovereign grace intervened into their life. And they're saying, name the baby John. We don't name him Zech Jr. And God was shattering their understanding. God was trying to get a point across to his people, the Israelites, that he was gracious. Why is God reminding them again? Because the people of God have a tendency to forget how good our God is. We tend to forget how gracious and merciful and incredible he is to us and how he cares for us and how he loves us. And we tend to let our circumstances and the situations that we find ourselves in become sovereign to us. And God is reminding his people again. He's shattering their perceptions and he's saying, I am gracious. The nation was thinking, well, if Yahweh is gracious, then why are we under the control of Rome? And yet God is telling his people again that he is gracious. He is shattering their understanding of their situations. But don't we do that too, just like the Israelites, when things get dark and bleak and start to fall apart in our lives, we start thinking, God must hate me. Why are things going wrong? Where is God? And yet God is there all along waiting to intervene in his time. And he always does and he always will. And when we see his hand so clearly after we've waited a while, and we may have to wait until we stand before him and he explains everything to us, but we will see then or we will see in this life that God indeed is very gracious to his people. He intervenes in our lives. His promises mercifully come into our life and shatter the way we see everything, and then we begin to see that, oh, he's working to bring about redemption. We see this also in verse 63 to 66. Look there. And Zechariah asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. 
and they all wondered. And immediately Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. As soon as Zechariah wrote on the, the wax, his statement of faith there, his tongue was loosed. Nine months of silence had ended. And I think the thing that Zechariah said is what we see in verse 67 through 79. I think that's what he said when it says he blessed God. We're going to look at it in a minute, the song that he sang. But I think that's what Zechariah said. The minute his tongue came loose, he said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel in verse 68. And he, he jumps off into this song. And this song, the lyrics that they hear in his song began to spread throughout the nation. People began talking about it. People began blogging about it. People began texting each other. People were talking about it on Facebook and Twitter. It was in the, in the Nazareth Chronicle, headlines. This song that the Lord has, is working redemption for his people. And so the most downloaded song on iTunes was by Zechariah. Everyone's talking about it. And great fear came over them because they realized God is intervening in our lives again. He's shattering our perception. His mercy has come down to us. It was a song of the Lord's faithfulness that he is a covenant-keeping God and that he keeps all of his promises. And God's people were hearing again about the covenant nature of their God being a faithful, promise-keeping God. And they began to be overwhelmed. And they wondered, what kind of child will John be? The Lord was breaking into the world and preparing his people for the coming Messiah, his son Jesus Christ, the Savior. There was a buzz in the air. People began to wonder, what does it mean with this child John? What's happening? What is the Lord going to do? All of these events point to and illustrate, illustrate the truth that God's promises mercifully come to his people and they shatter our perception and understanding of how we view our circumstances and situations and we then begin to see that God's working on our behalf to bring about redemption. Now look at verses 67 to 75. Here's the song I believe that Zechariah started singing the moment he, he got his voice back. It says, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness, in righteousness before him all our days. I think this is what Zechariah began to sing. These are the lyrics to the song that everybody was talking about in Israel. But look at verse 68. Notice the reason Zechariah gives for his praise to God. He says, For he, the Lord, has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. The phrase here, he has visited, 
the process is starting is what Zechariah is saying. Zechariah is speaking of it in past tense, even though John the Baptist has just been born, even though Jesus will be born a few months later. John, just like Mary's song last week, can speak of future events as being past events because it's so certain because of the Lord. And so he says he has visited, he has redeemed. And then he says that he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. What does this phrase mean? Who is it referring to? And what is a horn of salvation? First, it's referring to Jesus and not to John. This is especially true because he mentions the house of David. He's, he's drawing back on the promises in the Old Testament that the Lord would raise up King David, meaning Jesus, to rule over his people. So he's saying, this is Jesus. It's not John that he's talking about. He's saying the horn of salvation isn't John who's just been born. He's saying God has raised up a horn of salvation, Jesus Christ, the Savior, who will be born a few months later. Now, the imagery of this phrase is found in the Old Testament. The horn here is uh, not a musical instrument. Sorry, musicians, if you thought this was a bugle or something. It's not. Um, it refers to the horn of an animal, maybe like an, an ox, a wild ox. Psalm 72, verses 9 through 10 says this, For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered but you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. So the horn here is, is a sign of strength and victory. The, the massive bull or the wild ox, have you been around a bull or a cow? I mean, when I said that in Texas, it was like, duh. Yeah, we've all been around. Have you ever been around a bull? Have you seen it? its power? It puts you in your place. The, the immensity and, and the strength that is there. The farmer or the cowboy knows what John is talking about here when he says he's raised up this horn of salvation. In the ancient Near East, this is what they would talk about with power. They would talk about the bull or the wild ox, the power in this beast. That was their imagery for strength and power. We might say monster trucks now or you know, weapons of mass destruction, or tanks, or something like that, to symbolize power. But for them, it, it, was, it, was, it was the bull, it was the wild ox, with these massive horns going out. Psalm one thirty two seventeen says, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Zechariah is speaking about Jesus Christ the Messiah, the Savior, the horn, the mighty horn of salvation who currently is in Mary's belly, growing as a baby. God was keeping these promises that he made in the Old Testament through the prophets, and he was beginning the process of redemption for his people. So these were all promises in the Old Testament that God would raise up the horn, and now God is beginning to answer all of those promises and those prophecies are coming true because God's promises mercifully come into our world and they shatter our understanding of everything. And then we begin to see that he is in fact bringing redemption. He's merciful. Five times in chapter one, Luke mentions mercy, God's mercy. In verses 71 through 75, notice these words. It says he's visited, redeemed, Raised up, spoke by the prophets, saved from enemies, 
showing mercy, promise to the fathers, remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore. All of these verses point to the promises of God and his covenant-keeping nature. He is a faithful God, and all of his promises are trustworthy and true. All of them grace. All of his promises are trustworthy and true. And Zechariah's song is painting a picture here of our Lord who is a covenant-keeping God. You can trust him. And you can trust every single promise in this book because it's true. Your circumstances, your situation that you're experiencing is not truth. It's happening to you. But what's truth? God's word, God's promises. Charles Spurgeon once told the story of a minister who went to visit uh, an older lady. Um, and while he was there, he wanted to leave her with some precious promises out of her scripture. So he, I think he forgot his Bible and he asked to borrow her Bible. And he opens it up to find some promises out of God's word to, to leave with her as he leaves from his pastoral visit. And he opens the Bible and he sees in the margin of her Bible that she has written the letter P next to some verses. And he says, what does this mean? Why did you write the letter P right there in the margin? And she says, that means precious, sir. That means precious. Further down on the page, he saw the letters T and P in the margin next to some verses. And he says, well, what does this mean? And she says, it means tried and proved, for I have tried and proved it. You can try God's promises. And they'll prove true, every single one of them. You can write next to Bible verses, this is precious. And when you carry it through your situation and it begins to shatter your perception of your situation and you see that God's bringing about redemption, then you can come along next to that verse and you can write T and P that is tried and proved that this is real. Now notice the ultimate purpose of God's redemption in verse 74. Zechariah says that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. God was shattering their perception of redemption. They thought the Messiah is going to come. He's going to wipe out Rome. He's going to set up his kingdom. And then we're going to get to enjoy the benefits that all the prophets talked about. They failed to realize that God had a different plan, that his son would be born and go to the cross that the gospel would go out to the nations, which it had always been God's plan to do that. And he's shattering their perception of what the Messiah will be like and what he will do. And their understanding that God is going to redeem them, not just from the oppression of Rome, but that he also wants to transform them. John Piper says this, God's aim in raising a horn of salvation is not merely to liberate an oppressed people, but to create a holy and righteous people who live in no fear because they trust him. His ultimate purpose is to forgive our sins, yes, to restore us to him, but even now, to be transformed and not to live in fear of him. Moses, when he saw the Lord... I'm sure there was an element of fear there, seeing God in all his splendor and glory. And today, if Moses was here, and we could say, Moses, God has come. We've seen him in the person of Jesus Christ, in flesh and blood and, and bone and tissue and armpits and kneecaps and earlobes. We've seen him in the flesh. Moses would say, what? 
You saw him and you weren't scared. See, we need to fear the Lord. We need to have a holy dread of breaking his commandments, but we can come into his presence because of Jesus Christ. We don't have to live in fear. You don't have to get out of bed in the morning and say, oh my goodness, I've offended a holy God. A lightning boat is, is waiting on me as soon as I walk out of the house. We don't have to live in fear because Jesus Christ took all of God's wrath that was pointed at us and he absorbed it like a sponge on the cross. And so we can live without fear. Do we still fear him? Do we still stand in awe of him? Absolutely, but we don't have to walk around thinking God's gonna just smash me any moment. Listen, if God wanted to get you, he would have already got you. Was there an echo just then? (laughs) Maybe he's trying to make a point. (laughs) That was weird. <laughs> the gospel frees us that we don't have to live in fear of the Lord anymore. I tell, I tell Tabitha all the time, she says there's a monster in my room. I look like if a monster wanted you, he would already got you. He'd have already eaten you. He'd already eaten daddy. He'd have got us all. They're, they're not just patient monsters waiting on us days and days and days. Okay? We don't, you don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in fear of God if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, You've got a bullseye on your back because of your sin, because you were born in sin, because you've turned away from the Lord, and there's a bullseye on your back. And God's wrath will land upon you one day when you die, unless you repent, unless you cry out and say, God, forgive me. I confess that I'm a sinner and I've turned from your ways. I believe that Jesus took the bullseye off of my back and put it on himself and you've directed your holy, just anger, your righteous wrath upon your son and he took my place and he took my blame. And if you believe that, you can live without fear. Now he's your father. He's adopted you as his child into his family and he loves you. That's what Zechariah is saying here. Do we still fear him and honor him and and want to please him? Absolutely. But we don't have to think that he's waiting on us to get us if we're a Christian. If you're not, you need to do business with God. You need to repent and trust in Jesus. In verse 76 through 79, John's ministry uh, will prepare the way for Jesus to come. Zechariah says about his son, and you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace and the child John grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the picture of the gospel here that John's preparing for Jesus Christ to come, to prepare the way for the Savior, the Messiah, to announce the good news of the kingdom, which is what Mark says in his gospel. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now, after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And I say to you today, if you've not trusted in Jesus, repent and believe the good news. 
Jesus came to die in your place and God raised him from the dead to bring you into proper relationship with God because your sin has separated you. And John the Baptist's ministry was to prepare for Jesus to come and proclaim the good news of the kingdom. I want to close here with a few words from John Piper who says this, and I want to put this image in your mind as you go into Christmas this week uh, to to have this image of our glorious, almighty, triumphant, sin-forgiving, Satan-destroying, soon-coming king. He talks about the horn of salvation in one of his sermons, and he says this, Satan may be a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but none of those who take refuge in Christ, the horn of our salvation can he destroy if i were an artist i would paint for my home a special christmas painting this year and hang it on the wall near the manger scene it would be one of those big oil canvases the scene would be of a distant hill at dawn the sun is about to rise behind the hill and the rays shoot up and out of the picture and all alone silhouetted on the hill in the center of the picture very dark is a magnificent wild ox standing with his back seven feet tall and the crown of his head nine feet tall. On both sides of his head, there is a horn curving out and up six feet long and 12 inches thick at the base. He stands there sovereign and serene, facing the southern sky with his massive neck slightly cocked and impaled at the end of his right horn hangs a huge lion dead. That's a picture of the horn of our salvation, Jesus Christ, who mercifully has come into our world to shatter our perception because so many of us think we're good enough to get made right with God and he comes and shatters that and says, you're under the oppression of the enemy, Satan. And Satan and Jesus comes through the cross and resurrection and with the horn of salvation impales the lion Satan, who roams seeking people to devour, and he hangs there limp and dead because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the horn of salvation that Zechariah was singing about. And that's the horn of salvation that God sent into the world in the little baby Jesus, who grew up and never sinned and went to the cross to die in our place, to make us right with God. That's the horn of salvation that you celebrate this week. Everything happening in your life this Christmas, all the Christmas drama that's happening in your life because of the horn of salvation, all of those things are working for your redemption. God is pruning you. He's transforming you. He's working redemption when you can't see it. He's there molding you, changing you, transforming you more into the image of his son and you can trust him. Second Peter 1 says this, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. This book is full of very great, precious promises. 
Will you let them come into your world this year as you experience drama at Christmas time, as you go into the new year? Who knows what awaits you in 2012? I don't know. God knows. But there are promises in this book that you can bring into your heart and into your mind and let them shatter your perception of what's happening in your life. And you can stand on these promises and say, God's working it for my good and his glory. He's working it to bring redemption. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope of the horn of salvation that God has raised up for us in his son, Jesus Christ. Will you believe it today? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your son, for sending Jesus to do what we could never do. We could never, ever, ever do anything to make ourselves right with you, God. We needed a savior desperately. Thank you for sending your son, for raising up this horn of salvation who has impaled Satan, the roaring lion, on the end of one of his horns. His lifeless body hangs there and our king stands victorious. And no matter what Satan would say to us today, that you're not good or that we're not forgiven or that we're not blameless in your eyes, God, we don't listen to that because our king is victorious. We stand on your word and your promises, Father, today. You are, in fact, working everything for our good. Everything in our life is working together for our good because you have called us. You've adopted us. You've made us your children. Thank you for the hope of the gospel today. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.